everyone, and welcome to Pass the Hot Sauce, a Roswell podcast. I'm Aliza Ora. I'm Lorena Rose. And I'm Lisa Abigail. Today, we will be discussing the government response to the Roswell incident. So let's dive in. In our previous minisodes on the Roswell incident, we've discussed the flying saucer stories of 1947, the initial crash of some kind of material outside of Roswell, and the much later allegations of a government conspiracy to cover up the crash of a flying saucer and the deaths of its alien crew. We talked about how, between July 9th, 1947, and 1978, no one thought of Roswell as a UFO incident. But once the work of Stanton Friedman and others was out in the open, the pressure on the U.S. government to respond to these allegations only increased. In 1994, the Air Force responded to a formal audit request from Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico with the release of the Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert. The report acknowledges the outsized role that the Roswell incident had come to occupy in the public imagination. It says, and I quote here in my best Rod Serling voice, only because that's how I hear it in my head, but I am very sorry that it doesn't sound as good when I say it out loud. It's perfect, though. Uh, Everyone is welcome in my brain to hear how this actually sounds. Regardless of one's conviction, nowhere has the debate about UFOs been more spirited than over the events that unfolded near the small New Mexico city of Roswell in the summer of 1947. Excellent. (laughs) Yep, that's not how Rod Serling sounded at all. I'm so sorry. (laughs) In this report, the Air Force acknowledged that the weather balloon was, in fact, just a cover story, but not for little green men from outer space. Rather, the material that crashed was from a formerly top-secret project codenamed Mogul. Mogul deployments consisted of these gigantic trains of 30-plus research balloons and experimental sensors that were all strung together, and they could stretch for more than 600 feet Whoa. That's huge. It is tremendous. If anyone is like me, not a visual person, I will have pictures of this up on our Instagram so that you can see what it looks like because I can't picture 600 feet in my brain, but when I see a scale of it and see how much larger it is than a commercial airliner, I go, oh, okay. So in the report, they were saying like, yes, we were covering something up, but it wasn't aliens. Exactly. So they were covering up a project to detect Soviet nuclear detonations and ballistic missile launches. And this was designed to serve as an early warning system that would let the U.S. military know when the Soviets had developed nuclear weapons. So, Eliza, you're absolutely right. They were covering up something. It wasn't alien. It was just Soviet and a threat to humankind. Okay, so they just didn't want to out themselves, like, out their strategy. Right, yeah. So there's this great quote from a guy who was involved in the project who says that launching these Project Mogul balloons was like having an elephant in your backyard and hoping no one would notice. (laughs) There were these gigantic things. They couldn't officially acknowledge that they existed and they were for government research, but they were really important in trying to discern whether or not the Soviets were out there just blowing up atomic bombs that they could later turn on us. 
So a little side note here. In our last minisode, I mentioned a 1967 report that called Roswell the kind of story that readers found impossible to take seriously. And the fellow who wrote this report was Ted Blocker. And so he said in 1967, quote, there remains the possibility that some super secret upper atmospheric balloon experiment had crashed near Corona, the town closer to which this was found than Roswell, which would have accounted for all the confusion and secrecy involved in its recovery, end quote. And I just really want to give him credit for this because it is remarkably prescient and also because he did all this research on UFOs as a traveling actor and singer. And later he joined the New York City Gay Men's Chorus and then when he retired, he spent his time volunteering at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. What a wonderful man. I just think he seems so great and I want everyone to know that he totally called this. Like in 1960. Ted Blocker was like, hey, so I think there could have been this like super secret upper atmospheric balloon experiment going on. And the US government in 1994 was like, hey, so there was this super secret upper atmospheric balloon experiment going on. (laughs) Smart guy. Ahead of his time. Right? Like, as far as I can tell, he's the only one who figured out what was going on. Gay people are just smarter. What can I say? Yes, that is a science fact. Yes, <laughs> science. Okay, so back to the Air Force report. They say that the guys at Roswell, even though they had high-level security clearances, and after all, their unit is the one that was responsible for dropping the atomic bombs during World War II. Whoa. So they were high-ranking dudes. They were. But despite this, their clearance wouldn't have given them access to know about Mogul because it was so heavily compartmentalized, it was only revealed to those with a need to know about that specific project. So it's perfectly plausible that the folks in the 509th would have initially been confused by the wreckage since it was so much larger than a regular weather balloon, but... They also say there wasn't an official pre-planned cover story, so it's possible that General Ramey's weather officer did examine the material and just saw that it was made from the same neoprene material as a standard weather balloon, and then he just concluded that's what it was. Also, is it possible that they only got parts of it? Like that maybe not the entire thing crashed there? That that part of it fell off or came detached from from the convoy, Yeah, as it were? Yeah, so they say that it was this, like, Raywan radar detector and that uh, only parts of this project were actually classified. So they could have said, yes, there was a weather balloon and they weren't necessarily lying, but they were withholding the Mm -hmm. other purpose of this weather balloon. And they were withholding that there were all these radar detectors and these microphones that were meant to detect these ballistic missile tests going on in the upper atmosphere. So the report also goes into detail on the composition of the balloons, and it explains that Jesse Marcel Sr. and Jr.'s reports of a material that would spring back into position when crumpled was actually consistent with the materials that these high-altitude balloons were made of. And it explains the hieroglyphs that the Marcells saw by revealing that in the post-World War II years, some of the tape used in the radar reflectors was made by toy companies who... Thanks to wartime shortages, they used novelty tape that they had in stock. And some of this tape was pinkish purple, and it had flowers and hearts and other symbols on it. Because flowers and hearts look like hieroglyphs? I like to think that they were hearts, stars, and horseshoes, clovers, and blue moons. 
pots of gold and rainbows. And the red weather balloon. Ooh. Bringing it full circle back to the balloons. The report includes an interview with Captain Sheridan Cabot, who had gone with Major Jesse Marcel to retrieve the Roswell wreckage, who said that he remembered the material as being consistent with a weather balloon, and he said that, quote, there was no secretive effort or heightened security regarding the incident or any unusual expenditure of manpower at the base to deal with it. In fact, I do not recall the incident being mentioned again as being any big deal, and I never even thought about it again until well after I retired from the military when I began to be contacted by UFO researchers, end quote. So Cavett was very careful not to impugn the reputations of his fellow servicemen, but he did point out that by the time the UFO researchers came around, they were all advanced in age. And as he said, quote, trying to make people remember things that happened umpteen years ago is pretty hard, end quote. Hard, not to mention that memory can't really be trusted. I mean, I remember I heard something on NPR a couple years ago. I can't remember when it was <laughs> um, about memory and about how fallible memory is and how really memory should not ever be used for any scientific purposes because uh, you, it can't be trusted. Even if people are absolutely telling the truth, they like they don't they could, really yeah, know. Yeah, be telling their truth. Like, right. They could feel the, like they are 100% accurate. But their truth and yeah. the truth are not the same thing. Yeah. I have a brain like a sieve. So, I yeah. mean, I would not trust any. And 30 I mean, years. I don't know what I did last week. Like, right. And they're not even, even if they're not knowingly lying, um, the way people remember things aren't necessarily the way they happened. Yeah, and this is something that they probably would have done fairly regularly is going out and looking for wreckage of balloons. And so who knows if this is a memory of the first time they did it or the fifth time they did it or the 200th time they did it mm -hmm. and how he coordinated that in his memory with a particular year is anyone's guess. So Sheridan Cavett also said that the researchers had contacted him and others multiple times and they had offered him money to tell their stories as long as their stories matched with what the researchers wanted to hear. So if people were willing to pay sources money to tell a story that they wanted to hear, then, you know, whether it's it legitimately was their truth or whether they totally made it up because they needed to make a quick dollar at that point in their lives, then, you know, both are totally possible. Or some combination, right? Where, like, you have these vague memories where you know you did something, but, like, it's 30 years on. Who remembers? And then someone comes along with the power of suggestion and says, hey, actually, I think that there was a UFO crash and there were some alien bodies recovered. And you hear this over and over and over again for a few years. And eventually this just seeps into your subconscious. So even if you're not in any way trying to lie or make anything up, it might become a part of your personal narrative. Mm-hmm. The report goes on to say of the accusations of a conspiracy, quote, the post-war U.S. military, or today's for that matter, did not have the capability to rapidly identify, recover, coordinate, cover up, and quickly minimize public scrutiny of such an event. The claim that they did so without leaving even a little bit of a suspicious paper trail for 47 years is incredible, end quote. I think for here they're using incredible literally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not credible at all. 
Right. So if you have friends who are in the military or in the U.S. government, I think it's fair to say that, like, they get up from their desk, they walk down the hall, they go to the bathroom, and when they come back, they have a report waiting on their desk about the piddle that they just took. So much paperwork. (laughs) Every step of the way, yeah. Yeah, so much paperwork. So I'm sure that the Air Force put out this giant thousand-page report, patted themselves on the back, and waited for the skeptics to come a-calling, which they did. Of course they did. Of course they did. And so in 1997, the Air Force put out another report, this one decisively and maybe slightly passively, aggressively titled, The Roswell Report. Case closed. <laughs> I like to think there was a an unpolished subtitle that was, oh my god, you guys, I'm so done with this. Can I please go home now? I need to see my family. OMG. Please stop talking about this. There are so many other things we could be spending our time, money, energy, and resources on. Like, we have other things to do. Yeah. So this report went through each of the major elements of the Roswell story, including the crashed saucer, the alien bodies, and the autopsy, and they tried to find the underlying truth that was feeding these rumors. What the Air Force concluded is that the stories that started coming out in the 70s in response to public inquiries by folks like Stanton Friedman were probably honest recollections of multiple events throughout the 1950s that just got mixed up in people's minds and got attributed to the wrong date. The stories that witnesses had told about seeing crashed alien bodies being quickly whisked away by the military had a few things in common. So they involved some sort of military operations that appeared unusual, especially from a distance. The exact dates of these things were largely unknown. They took place in a couple rural areas of New Mexico. They involved some sort of human-like figures, often with four fingers, often who were bald, sometimes who were wearing one-piece gray suits. And they required recovery by numerous military personnel and an assortment of vehicles that witnesses reported seeing, including a wrecker, a 6x6, and a weapons carrier. The Air Force determined that the most likely cause of the reports of crashed alien bodies were actually high-altitude balloon tests that dropped anthropomorphic dummies to test the effects of high-altitude parachute jumps on pilots. These drops were fairly common throughout the 1950s in New Mexico, which was home to several military bases, conducting all sorts of experiments and tests. And civilians would often flock to the balloon or payload landing sites to the extent that a balloon branch recovery supervisor described it as, quote, the circus coming to town. The circus coming to town was a huge deal back in the day when there was not 50 million other forms of entertainment. Everybody dropped what they were doing when the circus came to town. This is a much better parallel to the circus, unlike when people describe our government as a circus. (laughs) Insulting to circuses. Yes. The circus is a well-oiled machine, and the military actually came to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey I'm going to probably misquote the year, maybe in the 60s or 70s to find out how they run things so efficiently and how they unpack and get set up to run a show so quickly and how they pack back up and get things loaded up and moved efficiently to another city so quickly because they did it so well. Wow. Lorena, why do you know so much about the circus and have such strong feelings about it? 
Because I was in the circus for eight years. I worked um, in the United States for six years with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Don't at me if you are an animal protester. Uh, Sorry, but I don't want to hear it. And um, then I worked for two years abroad in Japan. You also didn't work directly with the animals. No, I was a clown. I worked alongside the animals, and I always saw nothing but respect and love from everybody who worked around the animals. Um, We can all learn something from the circus, is what I'm trying to say here, to make a long story short. And I think we can also all learn to be best friends with elephants, because that has always been one of my lifelong goals. (laughs) Yes, elephants are lovely and wonderful and so smart, and they are, I just love them so much. I loved our elephants a lot. They were beautiful, amazing creatures. So back to what you were saying about the, like, you were saying that they would have crash test dummies falling from the sky and then people would flock to where they fell to? Yeah. Because to me, that imagery reminds me more of less of a circus coming to town and more of uh, children all flocking to where the candy falls under a pinata. Is that morbid? I mean, they're not real people falling. They're crash test dummies. Yeah, I think it's a little less depressing than that. Um, But the dummies would often fall and become disfigured because, as you can imagine, the impact of hitting the ground does things to your body. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would also love to take this opportunity to talk just for a quick second about crash test dummies, because I think everybody in the world should know that crash test dummies come in one shape and one size only and are modeled after uh, male bodies um, and are only in one size. I wonder if it's the same 180-pound cis man who is the model for all of our office's air conditioning systems. (laughs) Very possibly. (laughs) But so, yeah, I mean, I still wear seatbelts when I get into a car, not just because it's the law, but because I feel safer. Um, But uh, all the testing that's been done has not been done for my body. That's for sure. So I encourage everyone to wear a seatbelt. There have been lots of studies done of data collected from actual real-life crash victims that have shown that wearing a seatbelt is helpful and does save lives. So please, for the love of God, wear your seatbelt. Absolutely. Always. But very much in support of Lisa's point, when they are testing new cars, they're probably not anyone who looks or feels or acts like you. Just interesting factoid I learned recently that makes me mad. I think the more factoids you learn, the madder you get. That's the way of our world. Yes. I find that to be the (laughs) truth. (laughs) Anyway, so the Air Force would offer rewards to folks who called in tips about the location of balloons or payloads that the Air Force was having trouble locating. Since they were balloons, they couldn't chart clear, well-defined courses And so they would send a whole bunch of military people out to clean up the mess that landed in order to maintain good community relations and also to avoid paying out any damages since the polyethylene in these balloons would end up spread out over entire fields and cattle would sometimes eat it and get sick. So in reality, the Air Force wasn't collecting dead aliens. They were just out there looking out for the moo cows. Oh. 
So the idea is, a lot of people saw these crash dummies. Sometimes they were mangled from the impact. Sometimes they were wearing flight suits, like Air Force men would be. There was a huge government cleanup effort, and after 30 plus years, it would be pretty easy to forget exactly what happened, exactly when it happened, and, you know, to agree with a nice researcher who wanted to pay you for your story and who told you that mm, this thing probably happened in 1947 and what you saw were probably alien bodies. Doesn't that sound right? They say as they fan out a stack of $20 bills. That sounds just right. Yes, I think, I think that it is what I saw. Hmm, how convenient. So let's move on to Glenn Dennis, who was the main witness alleging that there were alien bodies at the Roswell Army Airfield. He was the local mortician we mentioned in the last minisode, and his assertions boil down to one. Dennis, a nurse he knew, and a pediatrician he knew, all stumbled on the autopsies of the three aliens, which were being performed at the airbase's hospital in an unlocked room, and in which the nurse was invited to participate by, two, the two mysterious doctors sent from higher headquarters to conduct the autopsies, then have the bodies transported to another base, three, the bluish-purple wreckage he saw in the back of a couple of ambulances outside were escaped pods from a crashed flying saucer. Four, Dennis was forcibly removed from the hospital and threatened with death by a white red-headed officer who was accompanied by a black officer because he witnessed some of these activities. And five, the nurse who told him about the autopsy was kidnapped, possibly murdered, and all records of her existence were systematically destroyed by government agents. So that's fun. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. When the people who compiled this report started looking into the claims, a lot of them fell apart rather quickly. The name that Dennis gave for the nurse doesn't match anyone who ever served at Roswell. There are a couple other people he mentioned who also didn't serve there at all or didn't serve there until much later. And Dennis said he uh, knew a pediatrician who was his good friend and who witnessed the autopsy but he couldn't remember his good friend's name. Huh, how weird. Mm-hmm. And the only person it could have been, according to Air Force records, this guy said he had no idea who Dennis was or what he was talking about. It was also more than 40 years later at this point. And Dennis's claim of being threatened by a white, red-headed military officer accompanied by a black officer are mm, somewhat undermined by the fact that the United States military was segregated in 1947. Hmm. Hmm. Which, to be fair, is more shameful on us as a country. Yes. But also casts aspersions on what he said. Yes, is still a fact, Both. even if it's shameful and makes it harder to believe his story. Mm -hmm. So it seems there could have been a kernel of truth to this report, but it would have to have been based on a misremembering of time periods and of key details. So what happened was in June 1956, a cabin fire resulted in the deaths of 11 Air Force members. Their bodies were taken to the hospital at Walker Air Force Base, which was formerly known as the Roswell Army Airfield, for identification, these bodies were then moved to a storage facility, and then the next day, three of them were autopsied at the mortuary where Dennis claimed to work. Oh. It's all starting okay. to make sense now. 
Yeah, so it, it starts to come together, and the bodies were badly disfigured, mm-hmm. which could account for memories of unusual-looking autopsies. Mm-hmm. There are some quotes in the report that I won't read because I think it's disrespectful to the folks who died. Um, but if you're interested, you can look into that and find out how the reports of the alien bodies do actually match the reports of these Air Force service members who were killed in this tragic accident. And some of the other details could have been filled in from Dennis's memories of a 1959 incident, so three years later, in which a balloon pilot injured his head during a training exercise. This pilot was taken to the base along with the debris of the balloon, which matched Dennis's description of the flying saucer wreckage in the back of the ambulances. Go figure. This could also explain one witness's report of seeing an alien walk into the base under his own authority, as the pilot's head was so swollen and disfigured that initially even his own wife didn't recognize him. Okay, and and a lot of the images that we have now of aliens are like with these big heads. Yeah, and there are these descriptions of him, and it's just like he had just all of this blood under his skin, so he had these two black eyes Mm -hmm. and this swollen forehead, and apparently he looked kind of gross. But fortunately, he was okay. He went on to contribute to some really important Air Force research. And I actually want to take just a quick minute to shout out this researcher because I think it's really cool. The pilot who was injured was training for high altitude flights with an experienced balloon pilot by the name of Colonel Joseph Kittinger. And Kittinger is just such a cool guy. He is still alive as of this recording, aged 91 in 2019. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. In a 1960 high-altitude balloon jump, he sent records for the highest balloon ascent, the highest parachute jump, the longest duration free fall at four minutes, and the fastest speed by a human being through the atmosphere. He held these Whoa. records for highest jump, which was more than 19 miles up, and fastest velocity <sighs> at more than 600 miles per hour <sighs> for over 50 years. That sounds terrifying. That sounds awesome. I don't want to do that. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Lorena. No, thank you. No. Yeah, so he jumped out of a balloon 19 miles above the Earth's surface, Mm-mm. plummeted no, no, at more no, than no, 600 no. miles an hour to the Earth, and these records no, were held no. for four over minutes. 50, yeah, for four minutes he was for in free fall. four <gasps> minutes he was just <gasps> falling. He was just falling. Think about how long four minutes is. I'm going to have a heart attack just thinking about that. <laughs> So he held these records for over 50 years until they were (sighs) broken in 2012 by a guy named Felix Baumgartner. And y'all, guess who served as the capsule commander for Felix Baumgartner's jump? Who? Oh, it was Kittinger, who was well into his 80s, but still found the time to advise Baumgartner. But still a badass. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And he also had served in the Vietnam War. He was a POW in what was known as the Hanoi Hilton. He was noted for his effectiveness in motivating other prisoners to maintain strong resistance postures. So essentially, he was helping other prisoners of war stay strong and not give up information to the enemy. So naturally, he received a ton of military medals. And then he was like, cool, so I'm not done. In 1984, he became the first person to make a solo crossing of the Atlantic Ocean by balloon. Cool. He did a bunch of super rad stuff, and now he lives in Orlando, where there's a park named after him, and I've also read that at one point he did some demonstrations by Disney World, and I love Disney World so much, and I love him so much, and this makes me so happy. 
So the balloon research that Kittinger was involved in, that the Air Force was in charge of, played a huge role in laying the groundwork for the U.S. space program. So this is why they're dropping all of these dummies from these balloons. They were preparing for what would eventually become NASA, what would eventually become the U.S. space program, what would eventually lead the United States to beat the Soviet Union in a lot of the elements of the space race. So naturally, the Air Force is really proud of this, and they actually cite it as a reason for writing the 1997 report. They say that they don't want these achievements to be distorted or misrepresented by UFO enthusiasts as something other than the scientific achievements that they were. And they also, and so this is where I sensed a bit of, I mean, I think justifiable defensiveness. They said they don't want the death or injury of service members to be exploited. So they say, quote, any attempt to misrepresent or capitalize on tragic incidents in which Air Force members died or were injured in service to their country significantly alters what would otherwise be viewed as simple misinterpretations or honest mistakes, end quote. So, like, I think that's really fair. Yeah, if you honestly, like, misremember and you think, oh, this thing I saw maybe was an alien, whatever. But if you're like, oh, I saw this thing and I could twist it into a story of an alien, but, like, someone died there. Yeah, that's fair and understandable. Yeah. Yeah. They're totally right. It, It disrespects the memory of that person. Absolutely. So finally, the Air Force says that the misrepresentation of Air Force activities as an extraterrestrial incident is misleading to the public and is simply an affront to the truth. And to conclude, I'm going to read a few lines from the end of the 1984 report and from the conclusion of the 1997 report. And again, I can only possibly read these as an excerpt from the Twilight Zone script that's playing in my head. So sorry for the crappy Rod Serling voice, but here it comes. (laughs) This report explains the events that transpired in and near Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947. While these answers are not as titillating as tales of unearthly craft and creatures, it is a fascinating story nonetheless. In the final analysis, the examination simply illustrates once again that fact is indeed stranger and often much more fascinating than fiction. Thanks for joining us for this week's minisode. Stay tuned for our next minisode coming up in two weeks, where we will wrap up our discussion of the 1947 Roswell incident by talking about what's going on today. And next Tuesday, join us for Roswell Season 1, Episode 4, Leaving Normal. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can help spread the word about our new show. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Roswell Hot Sauce and visit our website, roswellhotsauce.com, where you can find show notes including all of the sources and citations for these minisodes. You can also email us at roswellhotsauce at gmail.com if you have anything to say or ask us. Until next time, remember, if you want something done right, don't ask the government. Ask a circus clown, because circuses get the job done. <laughs>